0: Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth.
1: All right, if you would have a seat. Um, Let's pray over God's word this morning together. God and Father, you promise us that your word does not return void. So we have not gathered here uh, meaninglessly this morning. You intend to do something. And we are promised that as long as we uh, till the soil, uh, plant seeds by way of your word, that we will see life. We will see fruit. So we uh, plant our hope in that this morning. We ask you that you would make good on this sure promise to us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I will say this: This is uh, one of the two last sermons that I'm going to do for uh, some time, and I'm uh, doing a whole book. I'm excited about this sermon, but I'll I'll even tell you this: I'm even more excited about next week. Uh, I'll I'll tell you where we're going next week because we're actually finishing this week uh, our trek through these uh, these books of John that he wrote, these letters that he wrote to the early church. Next week, what we're going to do is something that I feel like I've been preparing for a long time, and that is. Uh, asking the question, how to build a worldview? How to build a worldview? I think it is personally one of the most important things that you can do. It's a lifelong pursuit, and that's what we're going to do next week. And so if you would, uh, pray with me over this next week that we would uh, do well at that. It's going to be a little out of the ordinary. It's not going to be quite as expositional as we are going to be this morning. But as we do, I would love for you to turn your attention to the book of Third John, uh, because that's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to try to wring a few things out of it and take them with us on our journey into the rest of the week. I do wonder whether or not uh, you have experienced pain as a part of being uh, a part of the church, honestly. I wonder if uh, mentioning a name like uh, Mark Driscoll or Joshua Harris or Tulian Chivijan or uh, Darren Patrick, uh, I I wonder if some of these names would actually bring about some level of like hurt uh, brokenness, uh, maybe even disenfranchisement, maybe even some of those names or uh, names that you've uh, followed, that you've read about, or that you've heard podcasts about, or that you've listened to lots of sermons about. And I wonder if uh, you have ever felt that your trust has been broken. It seems as though all of us, at some point or another, have had either a pastor, or author, or spiritual mentor who has broken our trust. Maybe. Uh, Your trust wasn't broken by a a celebrity pastor. Gross, first of all. I I don't think I've ever even said those words out of my face, celebrity pastor. It feels like it tastes bad, like even coming out. But it is a real thing. It's a thing that we have uh, had to endure, I would say, over the last little bit. But some uh, of us are not. That's not where we reach back to. We think about uh, some time in our childhood where we saw our family uh, maybe mistreated by a person in the church or the church as a whole. For others of us, it wasn't uh, some big name. It was somebody that, uh, that we actually uh, learned from one-on-one. You see, I I don't think that most of us were designed to actually listen to like 42 different pastors' podcasts every single week. I don't think that that's the way that we were really designed to learn. The same way that I don't necessarily think that the the human creature is built to take in a world worth of news every single day and bear the weight of like tsunamis here and earthquakes there and political discord there and wars here. I don't think that we were meant to take in that much. I also don't think that you are meant to like, be led by 52 different people on podcasts. I think it's maybe a little bit too much. We were designed, I think, to uh, have a few spiritual mentors, a few pastors that can lead and feed us. Why, why do I think this? Because I don't think that a pastor can, over some electronic source, lead and feed 120,000 people effectively. Why? Because they don't know you. They can't anticipate the needs that you have here. And while I don't think that it's uh, sinful to podcast or to take in a sermon or two from somewhere else, I do question whether or not we actually have the capacity to be formed by people, and then when they break that trust, as certainly they will, if you take in that number of people, they're going to break your trust at some point. So I I don't understand in some sense uh, why it is that that broken trust with a person that you've never met can cause you to question your faith or lead you to face an existential crisis, but I do see it. I see it. I have felt it. I've seen and actually put a lot of trust in these different uh, people, these different names, these different men and women that actually have valuable things to say, only to have that like trust that I built with them broken at some point. And what I hear in the scriptures is, don't put your hope in man. But I do understand it. I understand how it can be that someone breaking such deep levels of trust can actually impact you personally even when you don't meet them. Why? Because although the church is built on a foundation of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, on top of that foundation, a church is built through trusting relationships. It's not as though we're in some sterile environment. We actually uh, tie ourselves to one another. We you know, tether ourselves together. We actually build webs. We weave tapestries together of trust. And these relationships actually do something in our lives. And so when we do that, when we uh, place some amount of trust in others and that trust is broken, it can be very painful. So that does lead us to a question Uh, it leads us to a question of like, not just why we hurt. We kind of know and understand why it is that we hurt. But maybe the question is more like, what are healthy expectations of leaders in churches? What do we do? How do we think about it when those leaders inevitably fail us? For, For some of us, it's not somebody way out there. It's somebody in here. It's a person in our discipleship group. For some of you, it may have been your pastors. It may have been me at some point. I certainly have broken trust in this congregation. I have uh, done unwittingly and unknowingly things that have caused hurt. But then also, I've had to go back and ask for uh, real forgiveness because I've spent the last 13, 14 years uh, learning how to be a pastor—not in some way that like doesn't have effects, but that actually can hurt at times when I make mistakes. I've had to come back and confess those things and ask for forgiveness. So for some of you you're hearing this and you're even just like yeah I've been hurt it's you you've hurt me and I'm sorry that is that is true it's a reality how do we deal with it when that happens how is it that we can build healthy expectations in ourselves of the leaders and of the church and what can we do when those leaders fail what i think that john tells us this morning is that there are beloved leaders There really are leaders that we actually tether ourselves to. It's not just a concept. It's not something that you shouldn't do. That there really are beloved leaders who steadfastly support worthy workers in the testimony of the truth. There are beloved leaders who steadfastly support worthy workers in the testimony of the truth. And when you have all of those things working together, it actually builds something. It builds a healthy church. So what I want to do this morning is actually cut that statement up into its parts. I want to show you right from the Scriptures where I'm getting this. I want to look at the beloved leaders. I want to talk about what it is to steadfastly support. I want uh, us to know who are these worthy workers and what is the testimony of truth. That's kind of where we're headed this morning. So where are we? We're entering into this new book, but we're not entering it from nowhere. We've been in 1 John. We've been in 2 John. Now we find ourselves in the third and final letter of John. And we need to know something about how we got here. What we need to know is that the gospel has gone out, that the gospel hasn't just gone out. uh, It's gone out in the way that it was promised to, that it was going to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Included in that are the Gentiles. So the gospel has gone from uh, the uh, nation of Israel, the literal actual nation of Israel, uh, from Jerusalem, and it is continuing out to Gentiles. In fact, we see in Acts chapter 10 and 11, uh, Peter given a vision that ultimately communicates, listen, the gospel is going forth. It's going forth to Gentiles. We see Paul, who is called as an apostle to the Gentiles, and he actually goes out of all of these places into Asia Minor, and then eventually even to Rome, and he plants churches along the way. There is this good work of church planting. Why does Paul go about the process of planting churches? It's because the church are the bearers of the hope of the world. So he's doing this significant thing. And then left behind him are all of these beautiful little expressions of the church universal in local churches, and here's where we meet John. John has come in, he has gotten to know, he's actually been run out of Jerusalem most likely, he's actually in the midst of these churches, I believe, he's actually pastoring, he knows the people we're going to find this morning that are actually in these churches and going between these churches, and he has a lot of love and he's giving them truth. We've talked time and time again about what John is after here. But what we find in the midst of this third book, this third letter, is that the uh, church there is in turmoil. I want to read verses 9 and 10 just so that we get a flavor of it. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who would want to and puts them out of the church. So so this is the flavor of what is going on in the church. If you think back to like some Acts 2 kind of church and you're just like, man, if we could just get back there, if uh, City Church could just be the real true expression of the church, you know what we would find? We'd find this. We'd find division and brokenness. We would find leaders who are actually oppressive and using their spiritual authority to actually abuse the people that are in their midst and underneath their authority. And though Oftentimes, it goes nameless and faceless. We actually get a name this morning, Diotrephes. Diotrephes is the one who is causing this church in turmoil, this strife in leadership, this confusion of authority. We're seeing egos. We're seeing misinformation. Where? Outside of the church and the Gentiles? No, in the church. And John means to address it. This man named Diotrephes has uh, put himself first. His ego goes forthright into the first place. Second, it says that he doesn't acknowledge the apostles and their authority. He's saying, I'm the one who's in charge. He doesn't go uh, in in some way that is like, uh, you know, uh, overt and everything. He spouts wicked nonsense. So, uh, well, like one of my favorite phrases of this entire passage is that John just calls it what it is. He's going around talking, spouting wicked nonsense. That's what he calls it. So this is what Diotrephes is doing. And the fourth we see is that he's isolating people that are coming in, ministry workers that are coming in. He's actually keeping them out. And when they do come in, there are people that want to receive them in a spirit of hospitality and fellowship. And he's saying, don't do that. And then he's putting them out of the church. The, the, maybe for some of us, we even we see some of the threads run through. We've seen this activated in ministry. For some of us who have been around for a while, I know not just people that have been a part of City Church for a long time, but people coming in from other churches, we've actually experienced this. This isn't some clinical case study. This is something that we've lived out. And what we need to acknowledge is that this would be hard this would be super confusing to the people that's a part of these churches and it would be uh, ruining of the witness in some sense because the love that we have is supposed to tell other people about Jesus and when we're not, uh, when we're not loving one another, when we're not being bound together in the gospel, when we uh, have a leader who is actually keeping that from happening, the witness of Jesus Christ, the witness of the church is hindered in some way, shape or form. So this is probably a really, really hard thing to live through. And for some of us, there's maybe a weird kind of comfort that it's like, I've experienced that. And now I see the early church experiencing that too. God cares enough for us by the uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit through his apostle John to speak to you. Yes, this happens. It's something even that unfortunately you can expect And what John is trying to do here is show real leadership. There's a need for leadership in this moment. And the leadership that he's going to give is going to be very surprising. So first, I want to talk about the beloved leaders. Verse 1, look at it with me. The elder, that's John, we covered that last week, the elder to beloved Gaius. Okay, so, so we're getting a name We're not just talking about the leaders in some general sense. We're getting a specific name. We've got John, and he's writing to not just Gaius, but beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved. So he's talking talking there to Gaius. He's going to use this word beloved, and it can be confusing because we see beloved used a lot of times to refer to the church. I would say that every time that you're going to see the, uh, the word beloved here, he's actually talking to his friend. We're going we're gonna to dig a little deeper underneath that. But he says, beloved, I pray all may go well. So what are we learning here? We're learning that John loves Gaius. He, and he doesn't just love him in some kind of like uh, friendly kind of way. It's one that is based on and saturated in truth. I love you in truth, John says to Gaius. Now, now we don't know much about Gaius. He's not mentioned other places. We don't get like a a character study anywhere else. We're not given any more information. But what we do know as a part of this is that Gaius is loved. We don't know Gaius, but John does, and he loves him. And and what we need to take away from this, if I could just make one uh, maybe really simple, maybe too obvious for some of us uh, point, but maybe something that we need to hear is that real leaders love Maybe even more baseline for the guys that are in the room, real men love. And, And they don't just love their wives. They don't just love their children. That's kind of socially acceptable. They love one another. Real leaders, real men have to have and to speak love to one another. John is actually modeling this. He's modeling it not just for us, but he's telling his friend that he loves him. John and Gaius are real friends. I've realized the, important over, uh, the importance over the years and the blessing of brotherly love amongst leaders. Why? Because I've experienced the lack of it at times, not even necessarily in a negative way. When um, Sawyer and I uh, signed on to uh, a church plant that ultimately became this church, we actually uh, signed up with a guy that I knew for a really long time, a guy named Nick Osterman. I, I owe so much to Nick. I love Nick so, so much. You know one thing that we weren't? Like very good friends. We weren't like best friends. We didn't we had a love for one another in the truth, I believe, but it wasn't like we were going out and catching movies all the time together and like calling one another. I've actually experienced a lack of like true, common and deep love in leadership with other pastors. But what John is showing us here is is that it's necessary and it's good and it's a blessing. Leaders ought to have love for one another, but not just love for one another. We're going to find that they need to also be loved, okay? So, so how does this look? It means that we are seeing these guys love one another and speak it to one another, and they realize the importance of it. John is not uh, writing down to Gaius. He's not pulling rank over Gaius. He's not being passive aggressive. Real loving leadership, real friendship looks side by side. It looks one by one. It looks linked in arms. It doesn't look like someone is subservient to the other. Now, now, is it true that uh, John had a certain level of authority that Gaius did not have? yes. That's the truth. He saw the resurrected Christ. He received the great commission. He was there. He had an apostleship that Gaius would never have. But John knows better. He says, I'm friends with Gaius. I'm not going to speak down to him in some unkind way. I'm going to link arms with him. And that's what real love looks like, especially in leadership. But he doesn't just say that he loves him, he says specifically that he loves him in truth. What are we to make of that? Well, one thing that we can make of that is, is that John is getting on in age. He's older. He's getting older. We just know that from the timeline. We don't know how old he is, but he's getting older. One of the things that I think is suggested in Gaius' name is that he's actually, uh, first of all, not Jewish. He's probably Greek. He's got a totally different uh, custom and background and culture that he's coming from. But I think we also get the suggestion that he's younger. Uh, There's a lot of people that just believe that uh, simply based on the name that he was likely a lot younger. So what does this old Jew have to do with a young Greek? It's the truth. John loves him in truth. These aren't just friends. They're not just loving friends. They're gospel friends. I wonder if you have a gospel friend in your life. It's one of the reasons that we've designed discipleship groups the way that we have is that I think that there is a biblical principle that everybody, every Christian ought to be in a transforming Christian friendship, one where Jesus Christ, Christian, is at the center of it, where you are not just like letting it wash over, but you're being transformed by it. You're being changed by that friendship. And that's not just community and some kind of uh, like, you know, unattached kind of sense, but it's real depth of friendship. And all of us are learning how to do that in some way, shape, or form. What we can see here is, is that this friendship is not based on a common uh, interest. They weren't playing Dungeons and Dragons together and like board gaming it up. They weren't like, man, we're getting together because we have the same college. We love the same football team. They love the same person. They love Jesus. And Jesus can take an old Jew and a young Greek and he can put them together. I wonder if you have a friendship like that that you never would have had in a million years. It's not a person that you would have uh, even thought about being friends with, but because of the gospel, because of the commonality of the gospel, you feel more friends, more family with them than sometimes you do by your own blood relations. It's a beautiful thing. The gospel pulls us together in truth. And not just in some way that stands apart from the gospel. It's not just a principle. This is what the gospel says. The one true gospel that makes God's enemies into his friends actually creates in us a capacity for loving gospel friendships. At one time you were an enemy of God and his love so loved you that he sent his only begotten son to turn you into a friend, to turn you into a son or daughter, to make you related for a little time, no, for all of eternity. The gospel has that kind of power because Jesus was the one that came and demonstrated his complete love and friendship and he brought us into it. This is the one true gospel that makes for loving unity. So leaders in truth must lead in love. Leaders in truth must lead in love. If leaders don't love each other, then it's hard for us to steadfastly support one another. So first we learned about the beloved leaders. Next we wanna talk about the steadfast support that is received. I'm gonna go through this rather quickly because we've covered a little bit of it already. Beloved leaders support one another so that those leaders can steadfastly support others. Do you see this methodology for discipleship? So loving leaders, beloved leaders, love one another so that then they can turn outward and then go and love other people. There's a steadfastness in the support that they actually receive. So where do I get that? Verse 2, look at it with me. Beloved. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health and that all may be well with your soul. He's actually praying this. What I want for you to know is that it's okay to pray for one another's spiritual and physical well-beings. When you love one another, you actually initiate prayer for one another. Why? Prayerfulness is actually hard work. It is steadfastness lived out. Prayer for others flows out of love. I wonder if you've ever loved, uh, ever prayed for someone that you didn't love? Well, maybe, but I'll bet it didn't stay that way. Why? It's because it's very hard to pray for someone and not be enriched in love, and it's very hard to love someone that you're not drawn to pray for prayerfulness is a part of this steadfast support that comes out of, that issues out of love. Pray for others flows out of love. And this is encouragement. This is exactly what John is trying to do. I wonder if you tell people that you pray for them. It can be a little awkward. You're thinking, well, no, 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 I don't do that because I'm I'm told to pray in secret. I'm told to not let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. I'm not gonna like tell other people because that seems kind of snooty. It kind of seems spiritual snobbery. Stop it. Go tell people that you're praying for them. Send a text message in the middle of the week. Demonstrate your love. Don't pray so that you can tell other people, but tell other people when you pray, it enriches the love and the bond and the unity that you have with one another. How can I say that? Because that's exactly what John is doing. I don't think that he's sinning in the midst of this. Verse three, he says, For I rejoice greatly when brothers come and testify to your truth, What has happened here? Some people have come back to him and told him about Gaius' truth, his truth. And in his truth, he has no greater joy than when he hears that his children are walking in truth. So we actually get these two joys, this John rejoicing when people come and bear testimony to his truth. Why? Because first, he's indeed walking in the truth. Second, I've had no greater joy than when I hear of my children walking in the truth. Gaius' name literally means to rejoice. In fact, we can even hear the etymology there. Guy kind of turns into gay, the word that we use for rejoicing, for joy, for fellowship. The the primary meaning for that word is something that we can uh, know and see and understand. And I don't think that it's an accident that John speaks of this joy because he has a great rejoicing in his heart. He is enjoying, he has no greater joy than when he is seeing Gaius walk out in the truth, when his children are walking in the truth. Do you have joy when you see people walking in the truth? Gaius here is, uh, is getting written to from John, but, but he's not in a vacuum. He's enduring great heartache. He's actually experiencing all of the heartache that's that's caused by diatrophies, and he needs to be supported. So first, John starts by supporting Gaius. Then he actually says, Gaius, you're the one who is supporting others. There's this cyclical discipleship. Verse 5, beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your effort for these brothers, strangers as they are. Why is he talking about this? Because Gaius is going up against Diotrephes. And in verse 10, it tells us that Diotrephes is refusing to welcome and stopping anybody who would welcome and then putting out of the church anybody who would welcome these workers that have been brought in. Gaius receives steadfast support from John. Why? Why? to give steadfast support to these workers that have come into the church. And this prompts those whom he supported to testify to his love before the church. So Gaius receives the love of Christ to give the love of Christ, and then the workers come back and report the love and the faithfulness which, which he had actually spent, that it had cost him while he was loving on these workers. This, this prompts something of these people that have gone out to testify of the love before the church. Beloved leaders give their steadfast support to one another, but then they give it to others. But who are these other people? Who are the brothers that we've been talking about? They're the worthy workers. This is the third point this morning. The worthy workers that we see there in verse 6, uh, the last half of verse 6 says, You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. You will do well to send them. Who is them? Who are these people? These brothers that were not received by Diotrephes have uh, been faithfully supported by all of his efforts, this passage says, by Gaius. Verse 7, for they have gone out for the sake of the name. Now, I want to pause there that that namesake. They've gone out. Why did they go out? Who are these people? They're worthy workers that have gone out for the namesake of Jesus Christ. So these are itinerant ministers that have been uh, traveling, telling the truth. They've gone from place to place, from church to church, and they've faced persecution where they've gone. They are facing persecution now, and John is encouraging Gaius, that he has been supporting them. These workers were sent for the sake of the name, and they were to uh, be resent in a manner worthy of God. Now, this reminds me of Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11, uh, where there are uh, all of these people that God gives for the building up of the body Do you know this this famous passage? This famous passage tells us that there are apostles that are given by God, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, meant to equip, meant to uh, steadfastly support worthy workers, meant to actually uh, build up the saints. Why? For the work of the ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ. So I want to ask this question so that it can connect with everybody because maybe I've been talking this morning about beloved leaders, and you're like, well, I'm not a beloved leader. I haven't been in the body for all that long. I just came to know Christ. Where am I in this passage? Here's where you are. There there are these uh, people that were sent out to these churches, and they're not named apostles. They're not named elders. It just says that there were faithful workers who need to be sent in a manner worthy of God that are going between all of these church plants just to encourage, just to embrace, just to build up, just to be a part of these churches for a short time and then be sent to the other church plants. Who are these people? They're just Christians. They're, they're just faithful, worthy workers. They're everyday Christians. There's no title. There's no kingdom that they're building apart from Jesus' kingdom. They're just doing the work of the ministry. And we're told in Ephesians chapter 4 that, uh, that God gives the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers to equip these worthy workers, the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body, for a specific purpose. So that it can attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, maturity and stature of Christ, and no longer be children who are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. So that, that's who these people are. They're just faithful believers trying to build up the body. Verse 11 says this, "'Do not imitate evil, but imitate good. "'Whoever does good is from God.'" Whoever does evil has not seen God. So so these people are actually coming in. There's some amount of expectation, both of Gaius and of these worthy workers, that they imitate good. Why? Because good is from God. What essentially he's telling them is to be worthy, to be worthy workers, to be worthy of who? Worthy of God. Even in the face of broken leaders and divisions in the church, yes. So, So when it says imitate When it says, don't imitate evil, but imitate good. Why? Because everything good is from God and everything not of God is evil. When it's trying to tell them not to just behave, but to imitate godly things, what are we to learn from this? How are we to apply this today? I want to ask you a few questions Are you a worthy worker? Are are you someone who is being uh, built up, who's being discipled for the work of ministry? Are you doing ministerial work? Do you realize that you're a minister of reconciliation? Not meant to just sit in front of a TV or return emails or talk over the water cooler, but to actually daily be engaged in ministry. Are you doing it? This is the pattern that's been laid out for us. This is what God calls you, is a worthy worker. So I want to ask you, are you a worthy worker? And you might go, I I don't know, maybe. And maybe if it's in the space between on uh, conversations at the playground or in the pickup line from school or there when I'm registering for classes or whatever it is, maybe you're thinking, I think I am. Can you give me some more definition? I want to ask the question that's been spoken of these people Whose namesake are you working for? Whose name are you trying to beautify? Are you trying to lift up? Are you trying to glorify? Are you trying to glorify your own name? Are you trying to build something for yourself? Or are you trying to glorify the one name that is above every name? Who who is faithfully supporting you? This is maybe another uh, way of getting at the same thing. Who are you being discipled by? Is there any beloved leader that is investing in your life? Is there another person that's coming alongside of you, linking arms of discipleship? Is there anybody who is pouring into you so that you might do the work of the ministry? If there's not, there's a pretty good likelihood that you're not doing any of it. it. Whose responsibility is that to find that person? It's yours. Can City Church help me? And I hope so. I hope that we can pour into leaders who are pouring into leaders who uh, disciples who are making disciples, people that are actually loving and teaching and blessing and praying for others who are loving and teaching and blessing and praying for with others. Are we involved in this cycle of discipleship? I wonder if you are doing this, but that's not the real question that's on my mind. It's not, are you doing it? It's, why would you do it? And that's where we get to the final, final point this morning, the true testimony. These are not abstract questions to us. They're, they're not, honestly, abstract questions to me. Why? Because the church is messy. The church has been messy, Here's the truth. These questions are not actually even all that abstract to me. I've had to ask in the past, with the history of our church, "Am I diatrophes? Am I the one who's standing in the way? Am I the one who's keeping discipleship from happening for Jesus? From Jesus getting the glory? Am I the one that's actually doing that, or am I actually involved in that discipleship story here at City Church? These are not abstract questions." Verse 12 says this, Demetrius, different, a different D name, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. When you're in the midst of all of the confusion of a church split, when you're in the midst of like a lot of heartache from somebody who promised you to do something that did not do it in your discipleship group, when you uh, tried to even in a godly way lovingly rebuke a person and they walked out of the room on you, when they spouted nonsense against you, when they were unloving and uncareful towards you, I wonder, what is your bedrock? Are you putting it in somebody or something? When, when a beloved pastor that you listen to falls out of the faith, when they are unfaithful with money or sex, when they actually have something that uh, impacts the trust that you have built with them, does your earth break? Does it shatter? Do you question your faith? You need to return to the one true testimony, the one that John gives, the one that we believe from the beginning, he says. The gospel is still true. True. So Demetrius has received this good testimony from everyone. You've got a good reputation, he's saying, and it's from the truth itself. Their reputation is not built on the good things that they did, but on what they believed and the truth that they knew. We also, John says, add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true, John's testimony is true. When false teachers arise, when leaders break trust, when authority is misused, when churches split, the gospel is still true. It's not dependent on men. It's certainly not dependent on any kind of celebrity pastor that you might be reading or following. Praise God. The gospel is our guiding light. Why? Because Jesus was the despised and rejected leader. He he did not fail, but he finished. He made the unworthy worthy again. You see, all of this is not about John. It's not about Gaius. It's not about the divisions in the church. It's about Jesus. The gospel is that Jesus is the one who was the beloved leader, who steadfastly supported the worthy workers depending on the one true gospel. And he was willing to do anything to prove it. He's the beloved leader. When when a leader, when an earthly, when a horizontal, when I fail you, you do not need to question whether or not your beloved leader, Jesus, is still seated on his throne. When, When you are not receiving the steadfast support that you deserve, that God really wants for you, when there are people that fail you, you need to know that Jesus is the one that went to the cross and finished the work. When when this beloved leader who steadfastly supports you calls you into a worthy work, makes you into a worthy worker, wants you and draws you into this cycle of discipleship, this everyday disciple-making enterprise, when he's the one that is actually calling you to do the work of ministry, he's the one that stands side-by-side with you and endures through it all. Why? Because he's the true testimony. He's the one true truth. He's the one that we can depend on. John is writing his beloved friend Gaius not just to encourage him in the face of the tribulation, but to remind him of the true testimony. The true testimony is the steadfast support for beloved leaders and for worthy workers. And I want to pray that that would be true for you this morning. God and Father, we are thankful for your word. Uh, Lord, this is a short book. It's, it's honestly kind of hard to derive exactly why it's even a part of uh, what you say to us. But Lord, when we examine uh, our lives, the heartbreak that we've experienced in our ministerial lives, the uh, deficits and the debits that we uh, have incurred, uh, Lord, we can see in the midst of this a loving letter written by your faithful servant, John, to remind us of the true testimony. God and Father, I pray that you would make us a steadfast people who stand firmly on the true testimony of Jesus. Lord, let no failing in this world, no uh, megachurch split, no uh, convention, no uh, vote, uh, no walking away from the one true word or from the teachings of Christ, ever let us doubt the true testimony of Jesus Christ. God and Father, I pray that you would build City Church on the foundation of Christ. Lord, let no pastor here be a personality that people uh, look to or prize. Uh, Lord, it, it couldn't even be true if we tried. Lord, we're just about Jesus. Lord, I pray that in uh, the pride of my own heart that I would always be looking to give glory to Jesus and set people uh, firmly on the steadfast foundation and so that they might here receive uh, the great support that is in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would allow for us to uh, build on top of the foundation of Christ uh, with your word, with the truth, Lord, with relationships, and though those relationships might bend and break, Lord, let the foundation never fail. Let our expectations never be broken because our expectations are firm in Christ and knowledgeable of sin. Father God, I pray that you would help City Church to be a place where the true testimony of Jesus is firmly held, and Lord, where no one walks away from the faith. No one is excluded. And when people do arise, when we uh, look and see uh, these people like uh, Demetrius, um, Lord, would we be encouraged that a person like Demetrius can give a good testimony? But when we see Diotrephes, when we see those people among us who uh, like to put themselves first, Lord, would we lovingly rebuke Would we go with two or more? Would we go with elders? Would we be even willing to put people out of the church when they put anything or anyone over Jesus Christ? Lord, I pray for this kind of church in the only name that can accomplish it, and that is the name of Jesus, amen.